Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to. Because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy. So we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. that saw school kids make David Walliams cry on Britain's Got Talent, the first series of Race Across the World end in dramatic style, and Sewing Bee get recommissioned for another series, this is Series Linked. I'm Emma Bullymore from the TV Times, and this is Mark Jeffries from The Mirror. Hiya, Jeffers. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good, thank you. Well, on this week's episode of the podcast dedicated to everything on the box that's both on and in demand... John Hanna joins us on the show to tell us about his new drama, The Victim. We talk about the show billed as a sexy version of Watchdog, and Kevin MacLeod, icon, shares his box set to watch before you die. You're listening to Series Linked, the podcast for TV fans by TV fans. Hiya, Jeffers. How are you doing this week? Yeah, very good. You? Yeah, good, thank you. Still lots to watch. Yeah, I mean, the weekend was really good. We've got the Durrells back now. Line of Duty, second episode. Just so much on. Line of Duty was good, wasn't it? Line of Duty was really good. Particularly enjoyed the scenes with uh, Stephen Graham and Martin Compton. That was my favourite bit. The bits, any time where they were together on screen, I just thought it was so exciting. Because you still don't really know what's going on with Stephen Graham's character, whether you can trust him, whether you can't. But you saw a really different side to him on Sunday night, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and I think sometimes the best scenes are the most simple and you've got two really good actors there. It's just a simple sort of casting, essentially. But you don't really know who to believe. You're not sure what's going on. And that's when sort of Line of Duty is at its best in a lot of ways. I also really like the fact that we got some some romance, I suppose, in there. Um, we had Martin Compson's potential to, to get back with his ex. We saw a bit of Ted Hastings and, you know, his wife and the divorce and then his old flame in another scene. And I quite liked that heartbeat, I suppose, of the show. It wasn't just all crime. There was a bit of love in the air as well. It was great. Oh, you're such a softie. Yeah, I, I didn't know, know you had this in you. But I, I'm worried that Vicky McClaw's not doing enough for me. Obviously, there's a whole big thing about H and Hastings and, you know, what, is he corrupt? Of course he can't be corrupt. And then Steve is getting all involved with John and this undercover mission. Brilliant. What's Vicky McClure doing? Not very much. Vicky's going to come good at the end, though. She's more senior than Steve, and so she is going to come into her own, I think, when it comes to finding out H and, and when we get to the sort of meat of it and the actual sort of prosecution. I think that's where she's going to come into it. Never really smiles anymore in this show. I mean, we do see a little bit of her home life, but generally she's much more just all about the work, whereas I think you get a more rounded character from some of the others. Quite interesting that... There hasn't been that much tension between her and Steve. I thought they were going to really play that up, that she's now senior to him and it's going to be awkward. But 
sort of got over it. Yeah, they flattened that down, didn't they? They showed them sharing a lift in a car and... They Sharing seem- a lift, the sign that you're getting on well with Colin. Well, they, they, usually you'd storm out. I just thought the conversation there was, you know, they seemed happy for each other on at least some level. I agree, I think particularly in the last series, there was definitely more tension between them and that seems to have been eradicated. Perhaps they want them to be seen as working as a team and they're going to get everything together. And also, I suppose they did come together when it came to the death of Monique, which obviously we found out very early on in this episode. If you haven't watched it, I've totally ruined it, but she is dead and everyone sort of rallied round in a sense around that and I felt that maybe brought them closer together as well. And I now just want to go into a phone box. Well, I, d- I don't want to call her those dodgy numbers. What, say 100 to 30? Yeah, exactly. Just a lot and see what happens. Maybe I'll get to go to like an exciting Narnia type place. I don't think that's really supposed to be the aim. <laughs> and also, like, just the idea that these little kids on BMX have got all these little cameras in there, like <laughs> Adidas tracksuit tops or something. It's quite quite random. That bit I was expecting a phone to get dropped on the floor or in an envelope, and no, it was like sort of undercover surveillance by a sort of twelve-year-old. Never trust children. I've said it before. <laughs> I'll say it again. We can't just talk about Line of Duty much as I would love to. Uh, we have to talk about some new dramas. And there's uh, plenty of options. Yes. So let's talk about the widow. It's a big, it's a big week for things starting with the starring Kate Beckinsale. This is coming to ITV this week. Tell us a little bit about it. So this is all about Kate's character Georgia Wells and uh, her fiance Will Mason, and he's gone missing, presumed dead in a plane crash. She is back home in Wales, and then all of a sudden she thinks she maybe sees him or a glimpse of him on TV, and so goes out and tries to find him in Africa. He, he's obviously got a quite a serious line of work out there before when they were together. And it's sort of this mystery, is he alive, is he dead? And uh, lots of intrigue and lots of unanswered questions, basically, after the first episode. And lots of hairstyling. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the problems maybe I've got with it is Kate Beckinsale, she does look sort of flawless in it. She's lost this fiancé, as I say. She's flying across the world. She's supposed to be very stressed and very tired, but she doesn't really look it. It's an odd sort of juxtaposition in that sense. But some of the other characters in it I think are very good. Alex Kingston is a charity worker in Africa. She's good in it. And it does sort of set up at the end of the first episode. Certainly I thought there was a a great last couple of scenes and you're sort of left wondering what's going to happen next, just like you were with The Missing. And so it, it works on that level. Well, it is obviously the same guys that made The Missing, Harry and Jack Williams. It's a bit of an odd time for them because it all went so well. The first couple of series of The Missing, everyone's like, wow, what you guys do is amazing. They're involved in Fleabag and brilliant. This series of Baptiste hasn't really gone as well as we might have thought. This is not really up to their standard, I don't think. I think it's good, but I think it could have been so much better. Maybe if they had a bit more time. Maybe, to be honest, if they had someone else in the lead role who was a bit more relatable. I don't know. I don't think anyone's going to watch it for Kate Beckinsale. And she is a good actress, but... I don't think she brings that much to that role. There are a few things that happen that you just think, you would have reacted so differently to that. What are you doing? I think it, it kind of struggles to engage in the same way that Baptiste did as well. And it's a bit of a shame because you know that they can write such brilliant stuff. I think you're being a little bit harsh personally. I, I don't think Kate Beckinsale's that bad at all. And I think there is potential for this. There are a lot of threads going on all across the world. You know, we've got stuff happening in the Congo. We've got stuff happening in Rotterdam and stuff happening in Wales. And there is plenty of intrigue in how all those threads are going to get pulled together. There is definitely a chance that maybe they've tried to take on too much with this. And there is also a chance that people are going to say it's very similar to The Missing. And even the, some of the music I find similar. And it's just instead of a missing child, it's a, a missing fiancé. So there is that danger. But I am intrigued to watch a couple more episodes. And I think I give it half a chance to be a hit. I'm interested in sort of whether the drama works for it or, or against it. Because with The Missing, the whole point of it was that anyone parent or not parent watch James Nesbitt with that kid just kind of slip away from him and think 
God, that could have easily happened to me. That happened so easily. It's so relatable. Whereas this, she's got a partner who's in the Congo doing aid work. Then this big thing with a crash. It's not really things that ordinary people can relate to very easily, I think. When Kate was doing press for it, I think she said that it deals with a woman's grief, basically, and sort of her picking her way out of that. You know, maybe some other people in the drama saying that she needs to move on and that he's definitely dead. So so I think there might be something there that's relatable perhaps to anyone who's lost a loved one. And I think the relationship, it does flash back and show their relationship and it does does feel relatable, it does feel quite genuine. But yeah, I, I don't think it's anywhere near as emotional. It's not, I've not got that emotional pull that maybe missing children has. Yeah, and there's a scene with a suitcase that made us both very angry, which you will see. Yeah, she just loses the suitcase at an airport and doesn't seem to be very annoyed about it at all. And I sort of think if you'd just come off a flight and, and lost the suitcase, you'd be furious. It would be like, get off, get off. And, and it just sort of seems to disappear you're and knackered, run away. You're knackered, you're aching, you've lost your partner, everything's terrible, and then someone runs off with your suitcase. I would be on the floor. I think I can't justify that scene at all. That is pretty flawed. But as I say, the rest of it, I'm still intrigued to watch a bit more. They're doing the two episodes this week on ITV and then it's going weekly after that. I think we've got eight parts. I'm interested to see where it's going to go. So that's The Widow. And then we're going to talk about The Victim. This is stripped across the whole week, four episodes. We're going to be speaking to John Hanna, who stars in it, in just a bit. But Jeffers, set it up a little bit first. Yeah, it's an interesting one. This It's, it's another sort of police drama, I guess, in a way, or police court drama. But there is a fresh look at it, essentially. It's called The Victim and it's almost about who is the victim, what we've got here is a child murder many years ago and committed by a sort of teenager, essentially, who then is allowed anonymity and is allowed to start a new life. And the mother of the murdered child potentially finds out the address and finds out the identity of this person and then tries to basically get them killed. The idea is whether that person is a victim because of what they've done previously and also whether they are actually the real person. So there's lots of questions to be answered there's a court case involving the person being identified and being injured and it sort of all stems from that there's lots of layers of who done it lots of you're not just trying to find out one thing there's lots that you're trying to work out really good cast I'm two episodes in out of four because I had a bit of a sneak preview so I can't wait to see what happens next with that one you can hear our chat with John Hanna in just a second So earlier in the week, we caught up with John Hanna, star of the aforementioned BBC drama The Victim and also star of what we've now decided is the best show in recent history, Race Across the World. You'll hear his voice on that, which has been hugely successful, if only in my own head. No, I think loads of people are watching. It's been a bit of a sleeper here, hasn't it? It is. It's consolidating really well. I will start to watch it at some point. But, but yeah, lots of people are talking about it. It's big on social media. And as I say, the consolidated audience is growing massively. I think lots of people are now going to go back and watch the whole thing. So, yeah, it's doing well. OK. Anyway, John Hanna, star of The Victim, star of many, many things. Here is our chat with him now. Enjoy. So, John, thank you for being with us today. Pleasure. Always nice to be asked to talk. My family never <laughs> asked me to talk. They usually just tell me to shut up. Shut up, Dad. <laughs> and you're mainly here to talk about the victim, but before uh-huh. we get on to that, mm-hmm. I have to talk to you about Race Across the World. Because oh, best I've, job ever. I've become obsessed with it. I, do you know, I've had more texts from old friends and people randomly telling me how great the show is than I've ever had for anything I've ever done as an actor. I'm quite disappointed. But yeah, no, it's a great show. I'm fast. Every t- When I'm doing the commentaries on it, I sit there and go, Oh, I want to do that. I want to be in the, the the cage with the elephants. I want to do that. I want to climb a tree with monkeys. And yeah, I love it. It's great. Did you have a favourite? Did your favourite change throughout the series? No, I enjoyed watching just the kind of 
the people develop. And obviously, the father and son thing is is kind of pretty close to my own heart. I'm actually dragging my son up to Scotland in a couple of weeks to do a little bit of the West Highland Way. Oh, he's 15, so we may well be a little bit like the beginning <laughs> relationship of the the dad and son there on uh, on last night's show. Yeah. Better than any kind of other voiceovers that you've done. You Better say? than yeah. anything. It's just great. I love it. Yeah. And as I say, it's really clicked with people watching it and stuff as well. Just there's something about that, um, the, the dynamic of the groups, the, the characters that they have, and the places they go, it ticks that box, I think. Like most dramas, you know, like thrillers or anything, we, we get a kind of vicarious pleasure from watching people go through things that we hope we never have to go through. And similarly, I think there is an essence of like, I want to, I want to get to Singapore by rail and road and hitchhike and do all of that, but... Yeah, you know, no, the footy's on at the weekend. <laughs> I'll miss the Arsenal game, you know, so we'd, we'd never quite get around to do it. And then we've also got the victim uh, this week, stripped across the whole week. Going, yeah, yeah. Lots of people are going to be watching, I'm sure, but just, just set the scene, or how would you describe it? I mean, the victim posits the question, who is the victim in this drama? Early on, we meet the characters, and then one of them has... He's attacked in his own home, very brutally, very seriously, with the intention to kill, and... Uh, we discover that he has been named online as someone who had previously, when they were uh, children, had killed another child and had been to prison and has now been given a new identity and relocated. Um, so the, we kind of investigate that kind of legal area where someone has used the internet to uh, basically, uh, in contempt of court, and named someone and rightly or wrongly whether that person is or isn't the person that they're accused of being that in itself is a crime the person who we discover put that online was the woman who was the mother of the child who was killed previously so it's a very involving emotional journey those guys are on James and and Kelly I think what's sort of different about it for me having only watched the first episode is that as an audience member you can't help you sort of instinctively decide who you believe and where you come down, whose side you're on. Uh, and that, that kind of, it's a very kind of polarising issue. So I think it involves you as an audience in a way that dramas, thrillers, which are more entertainment, don't quite do. And you're playing D.I. Grover. He's yeah. kind of the audience's eyes and ears, I suppose, in, in yeah. the drama. And yeah. he, because he's a bit of a lone wolf, he doesn't approach the case in the way that he's called a lone sheep in wolf's clothing I think (laughs) (laughs) well it's interesting you mentioned that about the audience and I've just been saying how the audience are are forced into kind of choosing sides I've always thought that the law its job is to be impartial and not to be instinctive and to make decisions it's to get the facts and gather the facts and put them before you know a jury or whatever process that is going to be and allow those facts to speak for themselves so and I've always had a bit of a bugbear on TV dramas. You know, you write some cop show. And I've been there myself. I've done it myself. You know, you're playing the, the lead cop, the grizzled, you know, damaged, divorced with a nice car kind of cop. And they just, they emote all over the place. You know, they're just, they're constantly weeping for themselves <laughs> and self-pity. And when in fact my experience of, of what happens to people in frontline jobs, whether it be policemen or nurses or or presumably in other parts of the law as well, is that you become inured to... to you're supposed to become anaesthetised to that kind of individualistic, emotional connection with these things. You're supposed to be impartial and objective. And, and so in a funny way, the character was... The character of Grover was 
from my perspective, what I was trying to do was be a non-character and not be someone who was a part of the story, if you like, be very much that uh, objective audience or taking the audience through it in a way. Of course, the character does have his own history, it does have his own backstory, and that, that ultimately creates a situation where he is not able to be as objective as he should be. But as I say, I think I think the nature of the crime that we're looking at in this show, people do take sides and become involved very easily. And is that what attracted you to, to the idea more, the, the story and the sort of freshness of the kind of plot rather than the character? Yeah, I mean, probably my initial reaction when, when your agent says, oh, I'm sending this drama over, I'll have a look at the part of DI, and you kind of go, oh, Christ. But another, another copper. Another copper, you know. I mean, like, with cloth, I thought I'd finally managed to <laughs> escape ever being cast as a policeman again. But, obviously, I looked at it, I read it, and, and my initial reaction, as is always the case, you, you want to sort of read a script in the way that an audience would experience the drama, hopefully. Um, and so that was very positive. And then when I started looking at the character and thinking about it and thinking about what would I be, A, bringing to it and also B, getting out of it by doing it, you know? This felt old-fashioned and like we were on a journey, which was fun. And that felt, from my point of view as a cop, it wasn't me just going over doing the cop that I did last time and changing my hair or something. And I mean, sort of grey areas is, is something that said a lot Talking about... Talking with my hair. <laughs> Talked about a lot about a lot of dramas, but actually that is really interesting in this one because if you see a grieving mother, you think, oh, she's she's going to be the saint, and then there's this guy, and he's going to be the villain. But it is, it's so the whole way through. Well, I've seen the first two, and the whole way through, you're never really quite sure where you stand. I think I agree with you. I definitely took a side at the beginning, but then I I wasn't sure. And... Well, it's really interesting if you look at the art direction and the color palette of the show, and you look at the colors and the way that Kelly is framed. Uh, and she often is the, the the designer for the for her inspiration for Kelly was very much as you know the Virgin Mary you know the kind of Catholic iconographies those colours those blues and reds and then blues and you know the sort of angelic colours and then you look at James's colour palette and it's it's very different you know it, it was really interesting and again I think that sort of depth and integrity gives the show more than we're doing a crime thriller you know you sit there you sit there get up in that line move to the window and you and kelly have some quite i feel like they're quite highly charged scenes did that come off straight away did you get much time to rehearse how how did it how was it working with her it was good i mean it was good although i think specifically i don't know if kelly was I, i think she probably was she's probably a little bit more methody you know, in the, in the sense of like, in the journey that she had to go on, she was going to require resources and patience to, to kind of go on that journey, especially when she was living at home, right? I was lucky, I was up in Glasgow filming, I'm staying in a hotel so I could go back to my, my room, have a glass of wine, watch the telly, you know, watch the world's wildest catch or something. <laughs> kind of hooked on those, like, who would go fishing in the Atlantic, in the Arctic, for Christ's sake, for a crab? Let's not even bother, but anyway. Kelly would be, you know, going through the mill during the day and then going home. So I think she kept herself very much in a zone, you know, very much in a kind of area that that was separated from me and James in a way. So I was very much kind of suppressing things down. So, so there wasn't the same kind of chit-chat that there might be, you know, on something else. 
I think that immediately meant that there was a little bit of distance between us, a little bit of coldness. So you mean off camera you were sort of being, maybe not aloof, but you weren't necessarily socialising we a lot to, to keep, to keep that heavily, yeah. for the realism of the show? It just makes it easier, I think, when you've got that place to get to. So just to continue on that sort of theme then, did you empathise with her character? You've obviously got kids of your own. Did you sort of think about what it would be like to be in Kelly's character sort of situation in real life? I knew... Kelly as an actress and the character were going through a journey for the show. While my character was not engaging with her, more than that, my character was arguing with his boss that it was irrelevant whether Craig's character was or wasn't the person that he was accused of because that didn't make any difference to the fact that this crime has been committed. And so while everyone else was sort of, as characters, was kind of shuffling, soft-chewing, if that's the expression, around her character and what she did and the sympathy that she was entitled to. My character was much more, no, no, we have a job to do as members of you know, the legal profession and our job is to gather information regardless of whether we think it's right or wrong or whatever. And, and so that even within my own work scenario with the other actors who were the guys playing my boss and the other cops who were there there was a kind of outsideness which again I was trying not to let my character have any sort of emotional connection to I think it's quite magnanimous the fact you keep saying it's I want to be a non-character I want to strip away because other actors you feel are sort of looking for extra extra things but that's what I mean about cops you know like most cop shows you you get all the background and the story of the cop and you find out his wife left him and his daughter doing this and blah blah and it's all it all was me and everything and I just always feel it's a little too telly, really, that we make a show about cops who are, on the whole, with the experiences that they've had, slightly removed from being in touch with themselves in the way that some flabby liberal actor like me is, and then we want them to be all flabby liberal actors like us, because, of course, we all think everybody emotes like actors and writers do. Sadly not. (laughs) Um, And we were sort of joking earlier that it's kind of like John Hanna Month on the BBC. It is, yes. (laughs) Because after the victim finishes, Trust Me starts. Is this just one of those things where it's a coincidence that you've been working for months and then it all comes together? Yeah, I mean, last year was... I mean, even that was weird, because we did the victim early in the year like sort of March to June and then that was and it was great that's the first time I'd been back in Glasgow for about 12 years first time I'd been working filming up there I was at the festival a few years ago first time filming up there for about 10-12 years and then I had the summer and then like a job came up in Malaysia which was like yeah that's cool went and did that and then I came back and I was getting ready for unemployment again and then it was like this other job came up which was bizarrely also BBC and bizarrely back in Scotland they would have been more separated initially in terms of the victim was originally supposed to go out in February and then that got pushed back a little bit and trust me was originally supposed to go out like August and then that got brought forward. I've got no idea why. And we also saw you on the Four Weddings sketch. Yeah, was yeah. that fun to do? Get it was back. great actually, yeah. I mean, it was really nice to get everybody. Surprisingly, you know, given that we say, oh, it's such a small world and all of that, but I hadn't bumped into the others at all. So it was gossipy, as you can imagine. Old school actor gossips, you know. There was none of that. Everybody sitting around on their phone, not talking to each other. It was proper gossip. And can you tell us a bit more about Trust Me? What, what are you playing in that? Trust stuff? Me, it's a thriller, but it's kind of stylized cinematic type thriller. It's very heavily influenced by certainly Hitchcock generally in terms of the style but specifically Rear Window um, where you have the James Stewart character who's in the wheelchair injured watching out the back of his flats. Well Alfie, the actor who plays the, the young lead, he plays this soldier who's been injured, spinal injuries, unable to move, 
comes to the spinal unit. He can only really sort of move very slightly, so his sight's limited. But his hearing is obviously quite alert, and he he starts picking up little bits of conversations and stories, which I just think's really interesting anyway. Like if you're nosy, you know you like hearing bits and people. And so in the way that James Stewart's looking in different windows, Alfie's picking up little bits of different story, and then is led to the conclusion that somebody is bumping off the patients. And it's a real proper, entertaining, stylish piece of drama. And great again, great young cast, Alfie, Richard, Katie, and then the old, slightly older ones, Ashley, and then me as the really old one. <laughs> oh, you mentioned Wildest Catch. We always like to ask our guests about the shows they enjoy watching. What else do you like to well, watch? Well, no, they're very hotel. They're very late. Like, you only watch these kind of programmes when you're on location in hotels. I think that was when I first started seeing like the world's deadliest catch. And I was like... And believe what these guys go through <laughs> in the uh, the Arctic, and order, they're up and down, and it's in Russia, and it's freezing, and they're catching crabs. For God's sake, I, I don't even like crabs that much, you know. The other one that I, I really quite like is American Pickers. I haven't seen that. What's that? It's these two guys who run a kind of antiques place, and they drive around and they go to people who they've heard about who've got like a western town. They own the whole town, and it's like so they've got all these things in there, all junk basically that somebody's got that they're selling in a barn so there's that and then there's storage wars as well you must have seen storage yeah. wars yeah. would you ever watch any sort of drama stuff as well oh yeah yeah you know, I watch proper telly <laughs> yeah like what is there anything like from that sort of side of it that, that you've watched recently that you thought was really good what have we been watching recently I've been watching Traitors recently that's been quite good I, I sort of like that kids didn't like it my son's doing the Cold War as part of like his GCSE thing so I thought this would be great we'll sit down no that didn't work but I liked it I kind of like those kind of spy things I'm a big fan of like John le Carre and stuff like that Killing Eve obviously was brilliant do you know what show that I watched on Amazon it was about a year or so ago it was called Patriots did anybody see that about the folk singing CIA assassin it was awesome Patriots. His whole family worked for the CIA and he's an assassin for the CIA. His dad runs him. But he also happens to be a folk singer and he, he writes his songs about the people that he's just killed. It's kind of weird and out there, but that is awesome. I think that's on Amazon. And I feel like I should ask, because uh, you're in something called Trust Me, and I, I'm looking on your Twitter and you're quite political on there. there. There doesn't seem to be many people that we can trust at the moment in the in the real world. No, there aren't. Not at all. Uh, politics is it's just a disaster, isn't it, really? But I've I felt for a few years that politics has lost its way, not just necessarily with the system itself, but what, who, who these people are in terms of why they are doing it. And there's a great old quote from Bertolt Brecht's Caucasian Shock Circle. I think they're talking about judges in that, but it might be politicians as well. Basically, he says, anybody who wants to be a politician should be barred from being a politician. <laughs> But there should be like some sort of electoral thing, like the lottery. You know, when they do the lottery, they should pick some names out as well, and you should be that. They, those people should be politicians for three years or something. You know, like a jury year, possibly. Like jury service, yeah. Get different people, you know, and there's no there's no escaping it. You're going to become no. You're going to be the prime minister this year. <laughs> I also felt like. Who are the role models in life that young people have to look up to, you know, in terms of sportsmen that we might have known in the past? People doing things for, you know, not necessarily selfish reasons. People doing things that you could look up to and go, that's phenomenal that you've done that, that you can do that. And what was your conclusion? Who who are those people? I don't know. I, I find it very, very difficult to find people that you could look at and go, yeah, role model. You know, David Beckham, no. Attenborough? David Attenborough, definitely, yeah. 
In fact, the whole Attenborough family, I know Mike as well, and I never did work with uh, Richard, but, you know, David Attenborough's... But then David Attenborough's like everybody's uncle, mm. aren't they? Because I worked with Mike Attenborough, very heavy play, and it, it would get kind of exhausting. And the great thing about Mike was that you could distract him, and he'd sort of tell a nice anecdote, and you could just sit back and have a cup of tea and a rest, you know? <laughs> and he would always tell a story about Uncle David, and I said to him one time, it's so funny, because I, I feel as if he's like my uncle as well, because I remember... Like back in the day when I was a kid and you had your Sunday night bath. Like you only had a bath on a Sunday, you know, because the immersion heater was put on and everybody had a bath on a Sunday. And then you would go down and I, re I remember sitting on the floor with my mum going through my hair looking for texts or whatever, school stuff, you know. And we were watching David Attenborough, watching monkeys, gorillas probably, going through each other's hair looking for texts <laughs> and things. And it's like, he was there every Sunday after bath time, so... It must have been an uncle. <laughs> the victim is stripped across a week. I just wonder whether you think that's a good idea, whether that's going to heighten the tension. Um, I, I mean, that's something I know nothing about, other than, in fact, that the producers are saying that's a really good thing in terms of building like the comeback, I suppose. I mean, I've done it myself with something's on for a week. We can get lazy about, oh, I'll catch up on that, you know. Whereas I think the fact that this engages people so fully in terms of like being involved and being you know, committed to one person. Oh, wait a minute, second. they're like that. Oh, Christ, about that. Oh, wait a minute, maybe it's him, you know. There's all kinds of ways in which... So I suppose having it on four days is going to keep people having it as an experience. What is it the Americans call it? A water cooler moment, you know what I mean? It's such an emotive subject as well, I think, because there's similarities with, I guess, real real life. And, stuff there's, like and there's so much in the news about, you know, the, the, the idea of social media and the way that that undermines the legal system which is you know let's be honest right or wrong it's taken hundreds of years to try to get it to a, a position of being fair and impartial and then you know even from the point of view of juries being told not to look at things on the internet which is I mean for anybody who's under 30 I mean you, you take their phone away and they're going to be they wouldn't know what to do you know they don't know how to exist thank you so much for joining us John that's a pleasure, pleasure thank you thank you so that was lovely John Hanna there. You can see The Victim on Monday through to Thursday every night of the week on BBC One at nine o'clock. I'm Graham Wilcos, here to tell you that the Bradley Wiggins show from Eurosport is back for a brand new series. For 20 years I've just been called a hero and a legend, you know, and other things obviously, but only behind the back. <laughs> we'll bring you stage-by-stage -stage analysis of the Giro d'Italia, the World Championships, La Vuelta, and of course, the Tour de France. Each week, Sir Brad and our panel of cycling experts will be taking a deep dive into the world of two wheels and lycra. Browser could put his hand down a toilet and pull chocolate out. The Bradley Wiggins Show from Eurosport is your essential guide to the greatest events in cycling. Subscribe now on Audio Boom, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. So at the weekend, it was announced that Corrie is going to be welcoming a new family in the form of the Baileys. We've had a little look at what they're going to be like. Very exciting times for Weatherfield. Always exciting having a new family in a soap or any TV programme. But I've talked enough, Jeffers. I have a question for you, and it is this. What is the greatest TV family to ever arrive in a series? I mean, this is an almost impossible question. You Tough. I need you to step up. You Google it and you get list of the top 100 families so just as you know the Adams family the Waltons <laughs> yeah. the Ewings in Dallas 
right now on BBC One, Fleabag's dysfunctional family. I absolutely adore Any them. excuse to get Fleabag. Uh, yeah, They're my, not of a classic family. Come on. It's, it's, I mean, great family scenes, though. The opening episode with a meal. Compared to the Adams family. The Watts in EastEnders. What? The Barlow's and the Platts in Corrie. All really Hang good. On, the Slaters have got to go above the well, Watts. The Slaters as well, yeah, I suppose. But if I've got to do one, only one family, I'm going to say The Simpsons. You know, they've stood the test of time. They've been on TV for a long, long time. Everyone knows them around the world. Globally, you put a picture of Bart up, whatever, everyone will know it. So I'm going with The Simpsons. Bit jaundiced, but iconic. Yes. Um, for me, it would be the Walker family from Brothers and Sisters. Did you watch that? I don't remember it well enough. Tell, tell me about them. Well, no, it's great. But just if your matriarch is Sally Field, you're already doing well. And then you've got Calista Flockhart's one of the sisters. Matthew Reese has obviously gone on to great things. Yeah, that's good. It's just a great family and a great series. And then Rob Lowe's just hanging around the outside. When a series has Rob Lowe not even in the central family, you know it's good. Go and watch the box set, brothers and sisters. It's not my turn to do box set before you die, but I'm going to suggest that anyway. And you go watch The Simpsons. So let's have a little look at a couple of new series that began very recently. So let's start with Joe Lycett, pretty much my favourite person on the telly. His new series is Joe Lycett's Got Your Back, probably the first ever comedian-led consumer show. He calls it Sexy Watchdog. Jeffers, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, I'd call it Watchable Watchdog. I think it's a consumer show, but with a bit of comedy, which makes it a bit easier to watch, perhaps a bit more enjoyable to watch for younger viewers. And uh, yeah, he is looking at impersonation scams, those type of things. And it's about sort of getting the tone right, I think. That's the key to this show, because there is a lot of humour in it. And sometimes there's serious matters as well. So it's about getting the balance right. It's got a couple of guests on there as well to liven things up. I think it's, it's quite watchable. It's such a brilliant idea because obviously a lot of Joe's stand-up, if you watch his stuff, is about parking fines, about jobs worth. It's trying to deal with all this kind of annoyance in life that just shouldn't be there because it doesn't really benefit anyone. And that's kind of the point of shows like Watchdog is to say, you faceless CEO... Can't you just give this woman who's lost £1,000 her money back because she's been you know, scammed or whatever? So it's a great idea. I think it still needs a little bit of tweaking. I enjoyed it a lot and I'll be watching. But for instance, he has a studio guest. Kathy Burke is on the first episode. Everyone loves Kathy Burke. We want to hear more from Kathy Burke. We want to hear about her gripes and her parking fines. And she only gets to say about two sentences. I think that's a little bit of a waste. So I think he needs to work out a little bit better how to work with the guests that he's got in the studio and that's easily done. I think by the time this gets a series two, it's going to be a really, really good show. Yeah, I think it's got all the makings, all the raw ingredients, if you like, of being a hit. It's 30 minutes, so it's not too long. And he's got another psychic, Mark Silcox, and I think he works quite well. He's sort of going out and about sort of a roving reporter. And Joe does a bit of that himself. What I liked as well is when they are sort of confronting the CEOs, sometimes that can be quite sort of um, stereotyped, you know, a hidden camera and they're going up in his face. We want you to comment, we want you to comment, that type of thing on Watchdog, which you've, we've seen thousands of times before. And Joe's got a bit of a lighter way of doing that, a bit of fun. It injects a bit of laughter into that. And I think even probably the people they're confronting will enjoy that more and, and maybe are more likely to sort of pay out, actually, if, if Joe's confronting them as opposed to Watchdog. And Joe obviously really cares about getting the money back. It's not just this is a vehicle for me and I can be silly and, oh, there's a Watchdog, but he really cares about getting justice for these people, which is great. I do like the psychic guy because that's all a bit more silly. So he goes into Burger King and he's like, you say you can have it your way. I want it my way. Basically, what does he ask for? Like burgers on the outside and buns in the inside. It's, it's quite funny and quite silly. So yeah, a big thumbs up from me, I think. I think it's good and I think it could get better as well. So it's great. 
So let's also talk about Celebrity Painting Challenge, which when I first saw this, I was like, you're ripping off Portrait Artists of the Year, which is one of my favourite hidden gems of shows, although now you've got more celebs in it. Do we really need that? But actually, I was kind of softened because it, it's celebs who are actually quite decent at painting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got six contestants. One of them is George Shelley, former singer. He says near the start, I don't know what's coming. Well, I'll tell you what's coming, George. It's a lot of painting, mate. That is a... Is a <laughs> It's Celebrity Painting Challenge and you are going to be painting as part of a challenge. This might be challenging. Yeah. yeah. Joking aside, yeah, it's pretty good. It's sort of what you'd expect, I suppose. Different challenges and it's different celebrities, as you say, who are quite good at, at sort of painting and sketching and stuff. What they have done quite well is I think they've got quite a good balance. There's quite a mixture of celebrities from all walks of life. Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen, you know, sportsman like Phil Tufnell. And so you get quite different sort of interviews and bits of different uh, sort of comments from them. And uh, the first one, you've also got Keith Allen involved, who turns up naked and that's who they're painting. And, and that has some quite interesting results. I feel sorry for Tuffers, though, because let's face it, we all love Tuffers, but he would turn up to the opening of an envelope, wouldn't he? He goes on a lot of these reality shows and he obviously can paint a bit, but he is not expecting this to be as hardcore as it is. Mariella Frostrup is presenting, you know, that's serious, that's highbrow. And then you've got two judges, Daphne and Lachlan, who take everything really seriously. He just wants to, like, do a painting and say, will this do this all right? And they're like, oh, you need to work into this. And he's like, oh, oh. You know, whereas Jane Seymour is on there and Josie Darby, their stuff is really, really good. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, you've got, like, Tuffers and then, like, or George as well, who can, you know, he can paint a bit. But you've got someone like Jane. She's got virtually a full-time gallery, a professional gallery, um, sort of back home in LA or whatever. And it just seems... Yeah, there are quite different uh, variants in terms of skill, aren't there? But it is good to see. I thought there'd be celebs who could barely draw, but they can all. There's a basic level of competence, which I suppose you need for something like this to work. Do you think this has any chance of being another Bake Off, another Sewing Bee? I think it's going to be more in terms of ratings, more of the Sewing Bee end of the scale to be, compared to Bake Off. Sewing Bee's done well though. It has, but I, and I just don't think with painting, there's not that maybe emotional pull or even something that you can go out and do yourself. The big thing about Bake Off, people love watching it. People have also loved getting back into baking in the last sort of decade or whatever. Home baking has grown hugely and, and that's a big thing now. Whereas realistically, am I going to go home and whack the easel out and sort of start <laughs> messing around on the canvas? I love my artwork, as you know, but it's, it's not going to happen. It's time once again to add to the list of box sets to watch before you die. Each week, one of our favourite faces from the telly tells us a must-see series. Last week, it was Paddy McGuinness who chose the brilliant Curb Your Enthusiasm, set the bar quite high there. This week, it's a turn of Grand Design's host and Jeffers' personal hero, Kevin McLeod. How excited are you, Jeffers, on a scale of 1 to 10? I'm so excited, just the fact he's on the podcast. I mean, if I can retire now, basically. Please don't. Here it is. This is his box set to watch before you die. Hello, my name is Kevin McLeod. A box set to view before you die. My favourite is The Handmaid's Tale. I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. It's so powerful. It's a remarkable story of a, a totalitarian state. Imagine a world that's post-Trump, but also apocalyptic and at the same time relies so heavily on its, its historical culture in, in the traditions of people like the Amish and the early settlers of America. So it's a kind of weird, weird thing. My name is Alfred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law now. They needed to do it this way. All the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time. You imagine the airports otherwise? Run, run, run! No, 
What I love about it are the performances, which are so powerful and sometimes grim and really worrying. I'm not a fan of horror films, but goodness me, this series really sets up a lot of tension through the personalities of the main characters. Ray Fiennes is mesmerizing, as indeed the entire cast is. You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. Nearly every shot is beautifully composed, beautifully lit. The settings are quite evocative. And the sound is something else. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness. It's mesmerizing. Fantastic choice there, Handmaid's Tale. What do you make of that, Jeffers? Yeah, obviously Kevin's a legend and he's chosen a pretty legendary drama. I think it's a really good choice. One thing he probably hasn't mentioned enough is Elizabeth Moff's character and her performance in it, which I think is incredible. She got a Golden Globe for Best Actress. And also good news for him is that there is a third season coming. It's going to premiere in June in the States. So I think it'll be on Channel 4 over here probably a bit later. I think it's a good one. and I think you like it too, right? Oh, I'm a massive, massive fan of Handmaid's Tale. I know that after Series 1... A lot of people, especially a lot of feminists, said, oh, it's become torture porn and we don't like the way it's going. But for me, this series had such a profound impact on me. I I kept thinking about it for days and days afterwards. I remember avoiding the book at school because I thought it was going to be sort of whacking me over the head with sort of feminist theory or whatever. When I watched it, I just couldn't get enough of it. Elizabeth Moss is so brilliant in that role. It is so scarily possible. I think everything, certainly in that first series that's happened, has happened to a woman somewhere across the world. It's extremely moving. It's very difficult to watch at times, but it is just an incredible drama. And at the heart of it is one woman's struggle to get out of this. And her the, the episodes I found difficult are when she's sort of given up. And that's really difficult because it is just bleak. But all the time she's fighting, all the time she's trying to get out of it, it is just brilliant. And yeah, I, I cannot say enough good things about it. So I'm really pleased that Kevin's picked that. I think it's a great choice. Just a word before we finish this, Jeffers, why are you so in love with Kevin MacLeod? I just I think I've mentioned before my love of grand designs and I just the way he puts those shows together is really fantastic. He does these pieces to camera at the end, which I don't think he, he ever scripts, he just says them off the top of his head. They last sort of between three and five minutes. They're amazing TV. I imagine he just did that for our box set, he just sort of pressed record on his phone and just said that off the top of his head and it's just like the, a Rolls Royce voice. Perfect, just love it. Amazing. Have you ever met him? I've not, so hopefully one day we'll get him in. If we ever get him in, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, both together for a joint podcast, yeah, then I probably will just die. You know, that would be it. <laughs> Imagine the TV that would come out of th- those two collaborators. Working on a show together. I mean, that, that would be, yeah, some sort of house drama. Amazing. Some incredible comedy with brilliantly designed houses. I love it. Amazing. Okay, well, Kevin's back on the TV soon. Grand Designs The Street is on Channel 4 on Thursday nights at 9. Can you tell us a bit about that? It's like a super-sized version of Grand Designs. Rather than uh, one house being built, they've managed to get permission from a local council to do a whole street. So there's a number of different families involved. They're all just doing different designs. Some are going to go really well, some aren't. And yeah, you just follow the project through over a whole series. I think it's going to be great. Brilliant. So Kevin's busy with that. Thanks, Kevin, for your box set. There'll be another box set to watch before you die next week. So we're almost out of time on this week's episode, but as ever, we need to scan across our EPGs, have a little bit of a guess at what we'll be talking about, not just next week, but also next month and next year. Jeffers, this is your moment. What should we be keeping an eye on next week? 
I've gone a bit left field on this one. It's Moomin Valley I've chosen. Sorry, what now? The new Moomin series. I used to watch the Moomins as a kid. Sky One and Sky Kids have got a new animation of the Moomins called Moomin Valley, starting on April the 19th. But not only is it the Moomins back, they've also got people like Kate Winslet, Alison Stebman, Warwick Davis, Jennifer Saunders all doing voices. So I think it's going to be really cool and I'm really looking forward to it. I hope that's not going to mean that Warwick Davis is distracted from Tenable. I will be, I will be very distressed. I'm sure we'll be fine. Next month. Next month is the all new Monty. This is the ITV show that raises a lot of awareness about cancer and basically involves lots of celebs performing on the night. Quite a fun show. Taking their clothes off. Taking their clothes off. And you've got Ashley Banjo, Alexander Armstrong, Victoria Derbyshire, Colleen Nolan. Lots of people taking part. It's two 90 minute specials for a good cause. I think that's a good one to highlight. Next year. Next year, I mean, we're not sure we necessarily need lots more of these, but it's a comedian going on holiday, a sort of travelogue type programme. Oh, classic. John Bishop's Ireland is called. It's going to be a four-part series. Apparently, uh, John Bishop Ireland means a lot to him. It's where he uh, went from sort of doing very small gigs to becoming quite a stand-up star, and he's going to embark on what they say is a once-in-a-lifetime 600-mile road trip. I quite like John's stuff, so I'm quite looking forward to that too. I like Ireland, but I bet he's got it he didn't get Barbados or something. Yeah, it's not the most glamorous of travelogues to get. It's going to be cold. Right, lots for us to keep an eye on there then. That's all we've got time for. This has been the series-linked podcast. If you've enjoyed it, and obviously we hope you have, please leave us a five-star rating and we'll be very happy and a little review if you've got time. And make sure you're subscribed as well so the next episode is ready and waiting for you when it drops on Tuesday. For now though, bye-bye. See you later. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from, some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy, so we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.